Welcome to the Trauma-Informed Education Podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Professor Sandra Shafulius. Professor Shafulius is a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor and NEG Endowed Professor in the Department of Educational Psychology within the NEG School of Education. She also serves as the Founder and Co-Director of the Yukon Collaboratory on School and Child Health. She has authored over 150 publications and regularly serves as a national presenter and invited speaker. She is a fellow in both the American Psychological Association and Association for Psychological Science and is an invited member and past president of the Society for the study of school psychology. Professor Shafulius works on trauma-informed education and is amongst the most highly cited scholarly workers in the field. Professor Shafulius and her team's recent publication, Adverse Childhood Experiences, Translation into Action in K-12 Education Settings, highlights the challenges and future areas of inquiry in the area of trauma-informed education. Professor Shafulius is interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and me. We hope you find this conversation useful and interesting. Hi everyone, welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. K.A. Hi Kai. Thank I am very excited today <laughs> to have one of, uh, I think one of the people we've really read a lot about, I feel like we've talked a lot about, uh, and I'm going to try and contain my excitement and geekiness. Um, but um, Sandy, thank you so much for uh, coming onto the podcast. We're really excited to speak to you. Oh, I'm so very excited to be here and, and, and geek out with you. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Um, so I'll, I'll just start, this is a podcast for educators, Sandy. So we want to start by asking you about your own educational experience in primary school, high school or college, um, and how it sort of influences the work you do today. That's a really great question. I was thinking about it, um, uh, how I would answer that, because I usually start when I talk to my own students by saying I never thought I would be in school psychology if that makes sense, and certainly not an academician writing about trauma and childhood trauma. Um, you know, I, I thought I wanted to go into psychology for a while, thought maybe human development, thought I'd be an industrial organizational psychologist, all these weird things. But at the, the very root of everything, I come from a family of educators. So uh, my dad was a math uh, teacher, and he was an immigrant as well. And one of the reasons why he became a math teacher over time was because his experiences in the 1950s and 60s um, were were fairly discriminatory and and um, and not well treated initially when he came here. But he had a guidance counselor, a school counselor in high school, who believed in him and helped him um, see see understand the value of college, apply for a scholarship and be able to go. And so that was a big stimulus for him to be able to have that trajectory to then pay forward in, in, um, in his life. And my mother um, came from an educated, an educated family um, that started in early childhood, was a principal and then retired eventually as a superintendent. So I've always been around education, just couldn't quite figure out what that niche was because there's not a lot I think we're doing a great, a better job than when I probably was in school to understand what a school psychologist is and how, what that means and what that could be. So um, that's pretty much my experiences. I grew up in a really small, uh, lower socioeconomic community. So in, in growing up and seeing what my dad was doing and my mom, school was a really big community resource. And so in my own work, I started in an urban district and that was the first time I ever got 
exposed to things like community centers and school-based health centers and wraparound services, just hadn't ever experienced that before. And then I went on later to work in a rural area and started to really understand the stark contrast that we have, but central to everything that I saw in my own childhood and my own experiences is the central importance of school as a hub. Schools are a hub as a primary care setting. So that's my journey. Yeah, oh, that's that's um, really, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that, Sandy. I, it, it struck me how um, I, I was thinking about this video that's been going around the internet of the singer Adele and um, and it's in the UK and she calls up one of her teachers, I think, you know, it's a bit of a surprise and she starts crying and talking about what an influence it had on her. And, and I think it, it, it's quite interesting, not just the influence that teachers have on us, but also on our parents and how that gets handed down over time, I think, and is such a big part of why we do what we do. And I know certainly it is for me. I think we all have those stories. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so you, you said I could geek out. So I, I will say a couple of things about your work. Um, I know when Kay and I first started um, going on this journey, we were talking about this just before we started recording. We had all these ideas, I think, you know, we were uh, talking about all these ideas about attachment and trauma, and, and clearly Kay and I were both behaviorally trained as well, and tossing around a lot of these things together, and and often it's very hard to find a um, a voice or, or people who are on the same page with this. I was very lucky to have met Kay, who, where we could think about these things, but reading your work, and I can't believe it's it, it was published, I think the paper that we referenced a lot was published in 2016, I don't know where the time goes, but um, just reading some of that work was so inspirational because I think you were kind of grappling with similar ideas and you pulled it together so coherently. So I just wanted to say thank you because mm. it, <laughs> it felt like we were less alone in the world a little bit um, with talking about some of these concepts. Um, so I, I wanted to get your take on how it is, uh, you know, after all this writing, how it is that you conceptualize what trauma-informed practice is and how you see that playing out in educational settings. So I love, first of all, thank you for the, the lovely comments and, and the acknowledgement that this is a journey that we were all in together. So, you know, you mentioned the paper was in 2016. I think that's really important to bring forth. You said it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. I mean, it's just a few years that we've seen this kind of proliferation or this, uh, this push or trying to understand how trauma and the, the things that were happening in kind of behavioral health settings here anyway, uh, apply to schools and what does it mean? So for me, at the very core, I think of what we mean about trauma-informed practice in education in schools, the very core is this idea of developmental relationships and, and where are kids getting the, the positive, uh, supportive interactions that allow them to nurture and grow. Um, I had, uh, I can't take credit for this, but I think it's a great piece uh, David Osher had written about this idea of we think about each person comes to the table with a set of net vulnerability, right? We all have vulnerabilities in our life, every, every person. And the, the, the deal or what we're really trying to do is make sure that whatever we're adding or whatever we're contributing is an asset to reduce that vulnerability, right? So you have two choices. You can either be an asset or you can be a risk or whatever you're doing. You as a person or, or the service that you're providing can provide asset or risk. And our goal is to make sure that we are doing our best to reduce our total, the child or our own total net vulnerability. And so to me, that's really critical because that's what schools should, should be doing for every child. Um, we know, and we'll, I think we'll, we'll probably be talking about that a little later, historically, maybe that hasn't been the case for every child, um, but the goal is, and the reason for education is to, to be an asset in creating a positive developmental cascade that extends intergenerationally. So to me, that's the crux or the core of what we're trying to do when we talk about trauma-informed education or trauma-informed schools or practices. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was thinking about your comment about school being a hub as well, Sandy. And and part of, you know, I think that in theory, this idea of sort of integrating healthcare with education and meeting people, that it, it seems like a good idea. But I think when you 
get to the nuts and bolts of it, it gets a lot trickier with that. Um, and often there's this sort of real pushback about, uh, you know, work, you know, working out of scope or, or pushing at uh, delivering services in places where it's not a healthcare setting. Um, I just wanted to get your take on that, uh, on how you see the kind of value of um, putting, kind of thinking about the child as a whole within that school setting. Well, I think that's probably the most essential question of how to do it, but the the why and the and the why it's important is is to me something that we all should have consensus around. Uh, the idea of what's happening here anyway, or or what I see is that we want the school to be the whole child center, but we're not necessarily resourcing it in a way that allows us to be that place. It takes really careful work to have good community partnerships, good um, consultant relationships um, so that you can be a hub. You're not everything, right? You're not delivering everything, but you're creating the spaces to understand, boy, if we have um, a food desert in this particular community, this is an example of something that we've been dealing with, of course, during the pandemic, uh, we've had wonderful, wonderful food services directors in America. Every child right now can have, gets free, free meals through school. But what we many of our food services did during the pandemic was then partner with our uh, food banks or community uh, food providers and offer the same offer food for families or pick up at the same time that you were doing your meal pickups during this space. And so that's a great example of being a hub or a coordination center to serve a specific need at a specific time. Um, you said the same thing about the healthcare too, right? So if we have places where mental health service provision is really tough and, and that very rural setting that I told you I worked in at first, we're talking about a, a 60 to 100 miles, I'm not sure what that is in kilometers, but it's far a radius that these kids were coming in. There were no community mental health providers in, in the area. So if we wanted to do good service provision, it has to be a space where school can connect and be a space to, to provide that. Thank you, Sandy. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts. The, the lot has happened since the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, it was groundbreaking, and I think it has had lots of implications in healthcare and various different settings. Um, what do you see as uh, some of the sort of beneficial changes that's come from it? And what do you see as some of the risks, perhaps, of how that research and science is being used? So that's a really good question. And, and the original writers of that study, Felidia and Anda, have been writing new pieces lately about you know, their reflections on what the contribution has been, but then what the maybe unintended consequences um, that have happened as a result of that work. So just to back up and start to answer your question, I think awareness, acknowledgement, and understanding. I mean, ACE has brought to the table the understanding of what happens in childhood lifelong implications or, and impacts. Um, so, you know, the, you know, campaigns to raise the idea of um, ACEs have propelled terms like toxic stress didn't exist, you know, in, into everyday life. So that, that's a, a, that's a great thing. Um, so I give all the credit to, to the work that, that thought about that idea and, and put the, put the studies in place. Um, to do it. Um, you had asked what is the risk or what is the challenge in that? And I would say um, number one is that it, it we it's it the awareness and the knowledge have been increased, but it's we're still very deficit focused on the individual. So what's the problem or that might be why the problem we're seeing is happened. Um, and that focus uh, certainly is not always what we're trying to do when we're problem solving, but, but even more importantly, what it hasn't done is acknowledged kind of the, the communal, the systemic factors that may be contributing. So if you remember the original ACEs study didn't have items where the items were focused on individual exposure, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, it wasn't for another 15 years here, at least here where we saw studies that looked at community level adversities. So um, there was a group in uh, the, they call them the Philadelphia Aces. I don't know if you're looked into that or seen that at all, where we're acknowledging the adversities that aren't necessarily within a, a child, may have happened to a child, but maybe 
the, the intervention is not running around doing a lot of cognitive behavioral intervention um, therapies with individual children because that's not going to address the root cause of the problem. So that's the, the risk. But I do think it's important to, again, as we said before, that, you know, this, that original study was 1998. So we're only, ta we're talking 25 years, which yeah. is still pretty new. Yes, yes. We were talking before about people not understanding references from the 90s. I, I, think, <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> time moves a lot faster sometimes. But yeah, no, thank you for that, Sandy. I'll, I'll just throw it over to Kay if she has any questions or comments. No, I don't think I do at the moment. I just, um, yeah, I guess just thinking about the ACES study when we sort of, you know, teach it or we do that in professional development to make sure that we, yeah, extend it that way in people's way to think about it, you know, because I think a lot of what I read looks at it just the way it was in 1998. Um and doesn't think about those community influences. Again, it's a bit like, you know, we say in behaviour, the child's not the problem, the problem's the problem. The problem's the problem. Oh, I the love problem that. The problem's the problem, That's you beautiful. know. The child's not yep. the problem, the problem is the problem, you know, and that is what we're working on collaboratively to solve. Um, yeah, and it's that focus that has to change, that has yes. to be different. So what we've seen here anyway is that a lot of really wonderful and evidence-based, so again, not negating that it's not, they're not important, in trauma-focused interventions, trauma-specific interventions that delivered to individuals with the expectation that the individuals will have different skills and improve outcomes. But sometimes the focus should be on that system level. So the food desert was a, a, a perfect example, I guess, of, of something like that. So sometimes we need to remove, mitigate, or neutralize the trauma exposure. Like that's the systems little piece. And then sometimes it's about changing the behavior of others. So skill building teachers or educators, family members about um, actions that could re-traumatize or are, or are traumatizing. So the focus of that problem as, as you know, the problem is the problem, but then it's the why of the problem that then needs to really be delved into yeah. Um, yeah. and expanded. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, Sandy, one of the things Kay and I grappled with quite a lot um, when we started working together was um, it felt like as a psychologist and, and as a behavior support teacher, we were saying similar things, but with in very different languages, that there was actually quite a lot of common ground that we had to kind of try and figure out how to capture in a framework or a model or a way of practice. And, and part of what we were trying to do was to um, often take schools and, and, and teachers on a journey from what, what it is kind of dominant frameworks and prevalent kind of systems of practice into, you know, bridging that gap into finding new ways to think about particularly vulnerable children, but I think just behavior and, and you know, supporting children as a whole. Um, and which is where we, we were really struck by your ideas around, you know, multi-tier implementations and how, we, how it is that we, you know, sort of sustainably implement these things across time. I, I was just wondering if you could speak to what your thoughts were around, you know, sustainably implementing these trauma-informed practices within schools. Yeah. Uh, so take out the word sustainably implementing trauma-informed, the trauma-informed part, and just put anything, like X, Y, Z, anything you want. The sustainability is the key. And one of the things that I'm worried about or I'm concerned about as we go forward with this is that we can't take trauma-informed and put it in expecting that it's something new that just gets added. Right. So if we go back to what I think is the core around a de positive developmental relationships, you know, that that's that's what we're really trying to do. And so what we it's not that it's a separate initiative that should be the core mission of schools anyway. Right. So what we did in that paper, and I thank you for bringing that up and understanding that we were struggling when we wrote that paper, we didn't necessarily know what we were doing either. But we, but we did identify with my team that there was a need to try and integrate across literatures, across bodies of conversation, just like you, you just said, you know, one English um, from education and psychology, we have to combine to create that common language. So the number one thing, sustainability of X, Y, Z, whatever it is, has to be to work within existing school structures. 
And for me, in, in, in working on that paper with folks using MTSS, which here is um, become a, a common way of organizing and thinking about how to about the problem, right, and what to do about that problem. Uh, it, it, it would not behoove us to figure out how trauma-informed fits within existing structures and how the language relates to the mission of schools. So when you argue, you know, when you say to somebody, well, isn't the purpose of schools to, to nurture child development across different pathways, right? We want them academic, social, emotional, behavioral, physically, ages and stages. We vary our emphasis in different areas, of course, but don't we think that that's what we should do is we should nurture them so that they grow into these beautiful trees and nice, strong foundations? Yeah, no, not many would argue that, right? And so when we frame that it that way and we talk about how, then we talk about how that is a trauma-informed um, and how that the, these practices that you do can help make that tree grow. It's an easier conversation to relate to. Not, not easy for us to do, very hard, right? Uh, and we're all still working on that. And I uh, appreciate your, both of your efforts to do so, um, but super important. And so that paper at that time was our attempt to try and figure out how do we meld together these two, these things that, that aren't talking in the same way. Yeah, that, that was a very influential piece and all your work subsequently has been really useful. I, I wanted to ask you, Sandy, one of the things we grappled with a lot is about, um, you know, often Kay and I got our start with working with the kids with the highest level of needs within these schools and um, and there was this there was a sort of myth of the tier three child, you know, you sort of refer them out somewhere and something magically happens outside that they pop back. <laughs> yep. Magic, I love that, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, you would often have the same classroom teacher, the same school, um, grappling with this child who's maybe, you know, difficulties aren't as severe as before, but just just as complex. And and one of the nice things I think about the multi-tier system was that you know, we were saying that there are there are a range of things that you need to do across the school that's helpful for all children, but will also benefit, you know, the most vulnerable um, children as well. And, and that was a very powerful message, but it was a it was a message I feel like that that's still so hard to, you know, push through in some ways. I mean, I think people are more receptive to it now than they ever were. And I remember you know, starting off, you know, walking away feeling quite dejected about various different things. I wanted yeah. to hear your sort of take on that around, you know, this idea of um, how trauma-informed support supports all children, but also how we can really sort of accommodate for those really vulnerable children, how we sell schools on that idea of being uh, changing systems to in include everybody. That's a that's the million dollar question, right? But I, I think I go back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about this idea of the tiered support. So um, I think originally when multi-tiered supports came into play, the, the red or the top of the triangle was this idea that that was special education or something that had to be done outside. And I think um, here educators have worked really hard to, to push against that, that the red doesn't mean away, right? Or external, it, 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 the red, the whole continuum are kids in the school that need to be addressed. And so to sort of answer your question, and I don't have the full answer to that, but it's something I'm playing with in, in my new, the work that we're working on now is, the, is this idea of, of integration. And so when we talk about integration, we can go two ways in that triangle, right? We can go vertically or we can go horizontally. And so when we think about um, the benefits of going vertically, an example could be something like PBIS. You had mentioned that before. So let's say we have school-wide behavior expectations in place. When we use the, the same language about what those expectations are across tiers, you have integration across tiers and ways of being able to not um, reinvent that language in a way for that tier three or the red red zone have a different way of thinking or talking. So you get value in going this way. And, and then when you go across, you're thinking about um, uh, integration about what are the, what are the, how do we combine the needs? So in a PBIS where we might do a check-in, check-out intervention if we're at a tier two or at the, in the yellow level, 
But if that's not addressing, and that's great, so that might be one, but we might want to integrate or combine that with something like uh, cognitive behavioral interventions. So here we use CBITS uh, quite a bit in our school, the cognitive behavioral interventions for trauma in schools, say that 10 times fast, um, to address the, the trauma symptomology. And so the, 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 the idea of integration is that you get synergy of effects, right? So you're mere meeting um, all needs in different ways across the triangle um, in integrated fashion. How to do that, and that's what we're, we're working on now is really thinking about what are the tools that schools need to make those integrated, what I'm calling, what we, what I'm calling integrated MTSS or IMTSS decisions. Um, and we've got a couple of new pieces that are coming out soon about, about that, but we're working on the back end on some of those tools. Because I think, at least here in America, we've done a really nice job thinking about uh, tiered service delivery, but it's still very siloed. So it's like academics over here, behavior over here, physical health isn't even talked about really. When when you know sometimes that tier two intervention could be getting the right glasses, right, to solve a problem instead of putting them the child in a remediation plan for reading, yeah. right. So I don't know if that answered your question or digress, but it's stuff I've been grappling with as we think about now what's next as we go in the trauma-informed space in building knowledge and skills of individual teachers and educators, but how do we think about that at a systemic level in a whole child way? That is fascinating. That was really interesting. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. <laughs> Looking forward to your work. I'd love to have it all done, but yes. <laughs> yeah. We're now we're working, we're working on it. So. Sounds good. I'll throw it out to Kay. I'm sure she has some thoughts about. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying with the sometimes, yeah, the interventions that we think about in the different tiers, you're right, we think about them quite siloed. And just when you mentioned perhaps tier two is the glasses, um, it struck me there was this young little boy that we worked with for a couple of years and um, he was one of those children whose behaviour was going from the yellow to the red, from the yellow to the red constantly, and and we all became very fond of him and him of us. But we were implementing exactly what we thought was the right thing. The behaviour wasn't improving. It was really sporadic. And then somebody stumbled on the idea that, hang on a minute, when was this child's eyesight last tested? Perhaps maybe, maybe it hadn't. And it transpired that mum, who was a very vulnerable single person with very low level of education, had bought this child his first pair of glasses and had not understood that they ever needed changing because now he had glasses. And so his glasses were like five, six years old in their prescription and it was literally just a matter of us supporting her go and get his eyes tested, get him new glasses, and the behaviour stopped. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that story. And, you know, and I love the fact that you're, that you're willing to talk about that because, I, you know, it wasn't until really uh, five or six years ago that I stopped and I said, boy, I made a lot of mistakes as a school psychologist. I really think I made mistakes. Like, I can build behaviour plans. I can build... Oh, we had brilliant behaviour plans for this child. <laughs> I've never said I'm brilliant, but I love that you said that, right? That brilliant intervention plans, right? We can do that. Oh. But maybe we were looking at the wrong yes. target and we yeah. were not being very integrated in, in uh-huh. how we were approaching the issue. And so I sat in my little silo here doing my things. And yeah, we talked and we collaborated, yeah. but it wasn't quite the same as really saying that. And I think in particular, the physical health space uh-huh. um, is, is really overlooked. Mm. And now we've got, obviously, this surge with the awareness and the occurrence of mental health. And as classroom teachers who don't have a psychology degree, that, that's a really scary space to be in because you think, I, I just don't know about this. I know about the stuff that I do, but this part I don't know um. And that worries me too, that I mean, this is getting off, maybe a bit off topic, but that's very much been worrying me for the past um, um, year. And the idea that um, 
everything that is psychology is magical. I think we need to, to figure out how mm. do we um, yeah. not, uh, not assume that everybody can be a Govind, right? Cause that's not what we're trying to, to do there. You have your space in your, in your place, but there are things that create uh, part of that core um, in that core curriculum that are very simple, very simple strategies to build yeah. emotional okay. skills you know, thing. And so that's what we've been actually been working on. I'm really excited to launch a a new project in the spring uh, related to these very simple kernels of things like teaching kids and adults, myself included, uh, belly breathing or nasal breathing, a very simple strategy that, um, that we can, that we can do. So equipping folks with not thinking that that everything mental healthy is, is something you found out by you. Right. The red zone. Yeah. Because, and and why I'm worried about that is because, you know, we're higher. We absolutely do need to have more um, mental health service providers and related service providers in our schools, especially with COVID. But the problem is that the whole system needs help right now. Right. Myself included, right. We've all had issues magnified during this, this period at different spaces and levels. And so we can't run around addressing it as an individual one-to-one psych to, or counselor to student or adult ratio. We have to be able to be doing some core um, systems things and schools are a good place to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll tell you, check with me again in a few months. Cause we're, we're about to do some production on some things. And I'm super excited about it. Sandy, you, you talk in your latest paper and we'll um, put up the um, reference to your um, recent work as well, where you talk about the challenges and uh, directions for the future in the area of trauma-informed education. You talk about this idea of decontextualizing trauma, and you spoke about that a little bit before, and the need to be sensitive to community and cultural needs. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how we can build in culturally responsive practices sort of alongside trauma-informed care in schools. That's a that's a good question too, and we're we're all working on developing that. Uh, there's some really wonderful researchers out there that are that are working in areas to think about what does it mean to appropriately adapt trauma informed care approaches. Most of the interventions that we've um, developed or used have been developed in sing- single, not single, but um, rather homogeneous populations. And so, if we do something. Um, and we want to understand what are the core principles, again, back to the key elements or the, the simple parts, and what can be changed, and how do we incorporate voice and choice and stakeholders in those discussions to make sure that we're, we're, um, we're doing that appropriately. I have a silly, very silly, it may be silly, but a simple example of something like this, where I was doing a study a long time ago on this assessment I was building and the, that I needed the classroom teachers to do these ratings in the, in the room. And we had these, you know, examples and non-examples, operational definitions. And they called a meeting like the two days before the study was supposed to start. And of course I'm freaking out like, oh, they hate it. They're going to drop out all of these, you know, you know, things whirling through my head and I go to meet with them. And the whole conversation came down to in my examples and non-examples of something like disruptive behavior, I had hand raising, right? Not raising hand. And they said, we can't do that. We don't care if they raise their hand. We just want them to talk. And I thought, oh my goodness, just cross it out. You know, like, okay, for this context, we're not going to have that as an example. And so, you know, maybe that's a very simple example and, and not so much cultural adaptation, but, but contextual adaptation um, to, to make it, to have a fit and understand um, that everybody's on the same page and, and what needs to be done. And some, some of the adaptations we can make are, can be very surface level. Some of them are deep adaptations, but some are surface, can be surface. And part of that idea of cultural adaptations is, or culturally responsive is figuring out what that means. Yeah, I think the idea of adaptation is really interesting. One of the things we've tried always doing is really going in, you know, I think because we were both practitioners to start with, we knew that, you know, one size doesn't fit all and that we wanted to create something where um, I I knew for me as, as a psychologist going in how much teachers just get told what to do all the time. So I just wanted to 
give them some sense of autonomy, some kind of where they can use the ideas and think about these ideas and implement it with their local expertise um, that they have. And, and we try, we've tried doing this as well with cultural brokers, so people who we've done some mm -hmm. work the Indigenous communities here, Sandy, where we've brought in people who are, you know, members of the community, maybe elders, and really got their input. Yep. Um, one of the things we often struggled with, I think, is really thinking about where um, where are kind of the principles and guidance ends and where it sort of gets lost in how it gets used and how we maintain some fidelity around some of those things. Um, and, and also, I think Kay and I both struggle with this, where you kind of think, well, was, was that the program? Was that our intervention? I don't think it was. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. Um, so I was just curious about your thoughts about, you know, finding that balance between, you know, holding, you know, staying true to some of those principles while still giving the people using it some autonomy and control over how they're using it. That, that's a million. That is a really good question. Another million dollar question for today. And so part of that, I think, is um, really pre-planning pre and understanding what can be let go. So what is the absolute critical component to your program, right? What are the absolute active ingredients, the smallest, tiniest uh, active ingredient that, that is going to um, change behavior? So if we use the, the nasal breathing, again, as an example, does it matter if you do it as a three count? Does it matter if uh, up and hold and release? Does it matter if it, you call it belly breathing or nasal breathing? I mean, that's maybe a silly example, but no, the, the key piece is that we're using, you know, that we're, that we're taking the space and the time to, to, to use the full breath and, and, and release so that we can get that physiological response. doesn't matter what you call it, how you do it. You do it on the floor. If you do it standing up, if you, you know, whatever that might be. And I have to be okay to let that go. So that's part of the issue as a researcher again, too, because I'm trying to do these controlled trials and, and, and have everything look exactly the like, but problems of practice. And when I'm doing community engaged, culturally responsive, contextually relevant modifications, if I get the outcome, it's okay. <laughs> right. And you can identify what the active ingredients are. Sometimes I feel like we've packaged interventions too complex or too many parts to it that we, that we really do need to identify what is the actual active ingredient that we care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I feel a huge burden lifted from my shoulders somehow for whatever reason. Um, I, I think, and I would love to hear if, if, if it's okay, just to even think about just from a research methods point of view, Sandy, about how it is that you might capture some of how, you know, things have been used. I think that's something I know we've been grappling with for a little while is, um, really understanding how, you know, we've done that through some qualitative work, but how it is that they've taken it, made sense of it, and then implemented it, how the process of coming up with these sort of interventions, events, activities that they come up with. Um, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about how it is that we might understand that. Sure. So there isn't a magic answer to that, except the fact that I really, uh, at this point in my career, I'm not doing projects that aren't mixed methods, at least mixed methods, right? And I, I was not qualitatively trained. I was quantitatively trained, but I've, I've begun to um, understand the value and the appreciation of all kinds of designs. The idea that we only have one that could tell us how, how, to, how to change the world is, is, is ridiculous. But um, at the bottom line, I won't do projects that aren't mixed methods and have that stakeholder um, voice or that uh, that's, embedding through to help me understand what I'm seeing in some of the quantitative data. That's great. I'm not great at it. I'm not perfect at it, but it's definitely something that I, I have a team, right? Like when we put together projects now, we put teams of people that can each add parts of expertise together to, uh, to inform what, where we're going. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I, I was going to ask you about your take on school psychologists. We were talking before the interview about um, how that's a relatively new thing here where we are in Australia and um, how perhaps there's been psychologists in schools for a while in the US. What do you see the role of school psychologists being in, in promoting trauma-informed care and practice in schools, do you think? So, you know, I, I was thinking... Uh... 
the only way I can think about that is kind of the the coordinator of the hub. All I, all I have in my head is this picture of an air traffic controller right now, if you think about it, right? So, so the school psychologist is uniquely positioned um, by virtue of the training that they get, like with one foot in education, one foot in psychology. Um, they know a, a, a little about a lot and they know a lot about in, in certain areas. But what they what we train our students to do is really be very effective collaborative consultants at, at different levels. So it could be at the systems level, it could be at the individual parent parent um, parent level. But what they're doing is they're they're serving as those air traffic controllers or the I don't know what what it is what you call it a train station when they, the the switch connector right to have um, you come into the school and then figure out where you need to go to get those those trains uh, moving smoothly on the track. So that's what I love about school psychology in particular. Um, you know, we, I, I just, whenever a student will email me saying, oh, are you taking new students next year? I'd like to apply to your program. The first thing I usually write back is, oh, congratulations, you've picked a, a great profession to go into. Um, which can be overwhelming at times because there's so many different directions to go in. But I, I love or I value the idea of being that, that air traffic controller. I can't think of a better example in my head right now, but that's all I can see. That's okay. Uh, uh, when you were talking about trains, the word that popped into my head was the fat control. And I was trying to remember why. And I think that's from Thomas the Tank Engine. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, it is from Thomas There we go. I just put, I couldn't remember that one, but I was thinking of the striped blue hat. Anyway, oh, yeah. I don't think he's called the fat controller anymore. No, maybe not. It's not allowed to be, apparently. From what I've heard, he's got to right. have a different name. We've taken out the fat, I think. Right. Probably. <laughs> Danny, I wanted to ask you about um, educational policy, um, just at a very broad stroke level, um, what your thoughts were. We talked about systemic change and how that's so important in really embedding these sort of new ways of working um, into kind of across systems and making it kind of go across yeah. different areas. What are your thoughts about how policies need to change, you think, to promote trauma-informed practice? That's uh, that's a really good question too because uh, in in one of uh, a, a paper that we have coming out now too uh, soon anyway um, is that when we look historically at the legislation in the U.S. the vast majority of anything that's related to trauma and trauma informed in schools has happened since 2015 so just around that time that we did that first paper so we've got this huge proliferation going on of things. Uh, what I worry about, though, is, again, this idea of how do we understand how that's being, how whatever we're going to legislate integrates with what is already happening. And one of the things that my, my good colleagues, um, um, Farzana Salim and Stacey Girardi, have, have gotten me really to thinking about is that a very first step is to acknowledge and reduce the institutional contributors to what's happening in systemic trauma. And that could be everything, at least for here, school segregation practices, um, you know, Native American boarding schools. Uh, it could be, you know, the exclusionary zero tolerance policies that we had um, had in place. So the first thing we have to do is understand, like, where we've come from or what how we've contributed to, to that risk in that net vulnerability in order to then understand how do we how do we then take that opportunity to transform. To not be a, to be a place of systemic resilience, not systemic trauma. Does that make sense? So um, I don't know if I have all the answers to that, you know. But the first part is to really not only just get knowledge and skills about trauma, but understand how that fits within collective and systemic levels as well, and the the intergenerational history of contributions to trauma. Um, you know, if you're looking for very specific ideas, the first thing is really to work on reducing that exclusionary discipline. But that's not just legislating no more suspensions and expulsions. It's also legislating how do we put an alternative in place, right? What's the replacement behavior <laughs> if we're not going to, uh, okay, likes that one is the behaviorist, right? It's the same thing for adults. What's the replacement behavior? And then um, the second part is really legislation or policies, practices, procedures that encourage really that whole child and school work. 
And we already talked about that kind of whole child developmental pathways, but one part that we didn't really emphasize that's concerning us here um, in the United States is the idea of what caregivers need in order to care well, whether that be family caregivers or school caregivers. Um, the idea of uh, our teaching our teaching staff is 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 burnt is burning right now. Uh, we need to provide the supports um, here as well. I, I think your policies may be better than ours. The number of uh, women or moms who have had to leave the, the profession, work profession, because during the pandemic is creating national troubles for us economically as we go forward. Um, so who's caring for the caregivers, right? And how do we how do we not say, oh, you have to not do this and do this and do that, but then how, what, do, what are the policies and procedures in place also to make sure that our workforce is ready and able to provide care that contributes asset? One of the interesting narratives, just as you were talking, Sandy, you, I thought it was fascinating that we went from sort of po inclusive policies to taking care of teachers because, uh, you know, Sometimes looking at the rhetoric, sometimes I, I think, you know, I think principals and administrators, they find that exclusionary practices are the ways, uh, uh, sometimes are the way to kind of balance out the needs of the teachers with the needs of the child. You know, they, they're saying this yeah. is too much, you know, it's really burning them out. We need some time away. The teacher needs a break. Sometimes mm -hmm. the unions are involved, you know, <laughs> they're saying they're not. With all the things. Yep. Um, it's not a simple solution. But um, so we've been in our collaboratory, we've been working um, since June to, to focus on the school leaders and the administrators through, we're calling it like a leader academy, just to have conversations about some of these issues. And I can't take credit for any of the great ideas, right? We're the facilitators of the group and we bring, we bring articles or problems to talk about. And the ideas that they come up with are what's so amazing. And so I'll just share just a couple of the examples of, um, you know, free things, highs are free, right? So like positive greetings at the door for just like we do for kids, same thing for adults. And so some of the leaders were talking about the ways they're making sure that they're doing that and getting to every adult. And it could be even as simple as showing up unannounced to say, hey, I know you're on lunch duty today. How about if I take your lunch duty and you go take this 20 minutes to do something that you need to do? You know, little actions, um, again, I, I, what I'm trying to push is it's not huge overhauls of systems, but there are things that promote developmental relationships or positive relationships for kids and adults to adults that we need to be focusing on, at least here for us right now. It's not going to change everything, but it, it will go a long way in strengthening the core, our core capacity to be good caregivers. That's great. Thanks, Andy. Um, Almost finished. Um, I wanted to, um, I was going to skip over this one, but I'm really interested to know this. Um, you've talked a little bit about some of the work you're working on, some of the questions you're grappling with. Was there anything else you were sort of curious about in your work at the moment? No, I'm really just pushing on the integration and the coordination piece of how do we de-silo. And I give um, our Centers for Disease Control here uh, in the United States created the whole school, whole community, whole child model. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's a way to kind of integrate or think about all the different parts. And so that's really what we're focusing on is how do you put that into action and to create sustainable change. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I'll just throw it over to Kay and we'll wrap up if she had any final thoughts or comments. You're on mute, Kay. Do it at least once an interview, don't I? <laughs> no, I, I don't. It's just been really um, wonderful to, yeah, talk about it and think about it and we're sort of, yeah, happening, everything's happening sort of simultaneously really here as well as what you're doing there and we're sort of all working towards the same thing, have the same struggles and... But I think we're, yeah, making some progress. I think. I, I said in another interview the other day, though, I, I'm trying not to, um, you know, if somebody talks about a mental health pandemic, for example, right, that we're going mm. through now. And I think that's important to bring the awareness there, but I'm trying to frame that instead as an opportunity. Yeah. So if I had talked about these like little emotional strategies that we're, that we're doing like five years ago, people would have said that's cute, right? And yes. 
but not necessarily but now, cute, but <laughs> right. Cute, but cute. And maybe I could do it. Maybe not, you know, but now I think, you know, we see that it's critical. And so this is the opportunity for all of us to think about how do we put that in, in, you know, in space in a way that allows it to be sustainable. So I worry, um, again, here, the, the interview we did just a couple of days ago was about the um, number of, um, ER, ERs being uh, emergency rooms being backlogged and how, how, what the time is for kids to get mental health services. But again, those are up at the top tier, right? We can't forget about the core and we have really tremendous opportunity in our policies and our procedures and our practices to think about that. And I think framing that as whole child is the way to, to do, to go, but, but let's, let's frame it as an opportunity either way. Yep. It's a nice note yeah. to finish up, I think. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for your time. Was there any contact details or resources you wanted to direct our listeners to at all? Um, if you can just, uh, you know, all of the work that we put out or we push out is on our UConn, the University of Connecticut Collaboratory on School and Child Health. Um, follow me on Twitter if, if that's, um, I try to remember <laughs> when I to get to push things out as, I, as I'm um, going on, but but my program manager at in the in the CSEH is much better at that than I am, and keeps detailed lists of what needs to be pushed out. So that's fantastic. Thank so you. thank you, Sandy, and just behalf on K and I, thank you for all your work, and really appreciate your um, yeah your whole body of work really in this area and promoting the field. So thank you very well, much. I just want to say thank you to you, most importantly, as well, and to every educator out there um, that, that's working to, to promote schools. Thank you. Thanks, Sandy. That was our interview with Professor Sandra Shafulius. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's tipbs.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.